So we're in a remarkable time of the year. The earth is bringing forth new life with an intensity that really is amazing. It's just, you can't not see it. You really can't. And we get reminded every day that we live inside of a cosmic creativity that is the larger reality of our lives. We live inside of that. And we're creatures of it. If we pay attention to that massive creativity all around us, we can't but be in awe. But actually paying attention to it is not a trivial thing to do and it's not immediately obvious how to pay that kind of attention. So for the most part, we're not aware of the awe because we're just not able to feel that all the time, at least most of us. But in this particular season, we're surrounded by all kinds of symbols that remind us of this great creativity. Like bunnies, for example, remind us. And you will see how the symbols are bursting out all around. The eggs are reminders. The flowers are reminders. Nature itself is symbolic, by the way. Nature is inherently symbolic. The flowers are examples of that. And the story of a savior who died and was buried and came to life again, so a savior who conquered death, which is so powerful for us. And if we think about it, springtime also conquers death. Because all the flowers and the other plants that appeared to be dead come back to life. It's a process that our distant ancestors attributed to the powers of gods and goddesses. And indeed, why not? One has to have some way of explaining what's going on here, this amazing thing that's happening. And so many years before we had science and biology and all that stuff, it would certainly make sense to say that's Persephone coming back from the underworld. Sounds right to me. So Jesus, who came back to life, according to the Easter story, is part of that family of myths. Sometimes those myths, by the way, are called vegetation myths because they have to do with dying and going into the ground and coming back up again. And there's a whole bunch of those stories that you can study. So Jesus is like Osiris and so many others who follows that pattern. And so in his story, this life-giving creative cycle of birth and death and rebirth has a human shape. It's a person. And because of that human shape, this enormous energy can be approached, it can be acknowledged and even worshipped. And in a certain sense, that's the most natural thing in the world to do, I think, is to pay honor and respect to that tremendous force that we live in. The flowers are telling a similar story. They're like ambassadors of this great creativity. They're, they're 
trumpets announce this glory of life so that you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. Now, of course, Jesus has other dimensions as well. And after his death, he becomes transformed by humans into part of a complex theological system that grows and grows and grows as the centuries unfold. He becomes part of a trinity, a divine being. He becomes the founder of a new religion, which he almost certainly never intended to do. The story of the resurrection, which does not appear at all in the earliest of the Gospels, which is the Gospel of Mark, does not contain that story at all, eventually becomes the most emphasized part of the story. That becomes the part that's really important. And then we get the whole theology of heaven and hell, although hell is really only emphasized in Matthew and is never mentioned, never mentioned by the Apostle Paul, who is the founder of Christianity, never mentions hell, as if he hadn't heard of it. So the story grows and becomes more and more complex, and Jesus, the Jesus story morphs into a story that is not primarily about his teachings, which are basically about sharing, about love, about inclusiveness and forgiving, about healing and new hope. And instead, it becomes the story of salvation, which, in which all this powerful teaching about life and the way life should be gets pushed into the background and is replaced, really, by a giant loyalty decision. And that loyalty decision is the basis of one's destination after death. So if you believe, you go to heaven, and if not, you go to hell, a kind of cosmic bet that you make that was almost certainly not taught by Jesus. So religions are constantly evolving things. But, you know, the ancient world was a hard life to live. It was rough. Life expectancy was not long. There was no talk about health care problems. We have health care in some form or another. When they pull your tooth, they give you a shot first. There was none of that in the ancient world, and life was very difficult, and the present life may not have looked very good to the vast majority of people. It was a tough thing. And it's not surprising to me at all that there would be hope of a better life after death, a life that would be beautiful, and where one would not be sick, and where you would, we could be with our families, and there would be plenty for everyone, and no one would be treated Badly, Because not only was life difficult and physically painful, it was disturbingly unjust. 
And the ancient world was ruled by people who had absolute power over the people they ruled with. You could not question them, and if they waved their hand in the right direction, you would be executed. And there would be no appeal process, and there would be no parole. There would just be tyranny in most of the countries, with a few exceptions. Despotic rulers were everywhere. Torture was common. The story of Easter is partly a story about torture. It's a story about torture. And judgments that might end one's life were often capricious, like, take him away. You guys have seen all those movies, right? So justice was something that simply one could not really even hope for. Justice was not something that people aspired to in the ancient world. This is one of the reasons that so many people believed in an afterlife. And by the way, a lot of people still do that, not disparaging that in any way, but it's just fascinating to see how these things develop historically because in the afterlife there would be justice. You see? The bad ones would get what they deserved. They would get the justice that we couldn't give them in the present. And those who had suffered and been ethical people and caring and compassionate people would finally experience the reward that they deserved. Because it wasn't going to happen in this world for many, many people. Slavery was common in the ancient world and all kinds of servitude. So there wasn't justice. So that's part of how it became so very, very common to think that in the world to come there, there would be an accounting. And all these bad guys would get what they deserved. And the good people would get what they had really deserved in life but had never received. They might have been tortured or anything. So the idea of eternal life solved some of these deeply frustrating dimensions of earthly life. It resolved those things. Uh, the pain and suffering quality of life and the deep injustice of life were both resolved. And Jesus became one of the exemplars of that truth by according to the story coming back after being both tortured and dying, being executed by that. So everyone who had been tortured, everyone who had been treated unjustly, everyone that had that, that meanness around them in their lives could see in the story of Jesus someone who came through that. Now, you can look at that coming through in a literal way if you want to, and millions of people do that, and God bless every one of us. Or you can look at it as a symbolic story that says it is possible to deal with these kinds of horrible hardships and not lose your compassion, not lose your sense of love. No matter what happens, you can come through. So those are a couple ways you could look at that. 
Bishop John Shelby Spong, who spoke here just about a year ago, uh, is one of the most insightful explainers of Christianity I have ever run across. I think he's, he's pretty much number one for me. Um, Bishop Spong has a book on the resurrection in which he uses his non-literalistic style of analysis of the Bible to show how the idea of resurrection has shaped our culture. He says that the resurrection story changed dramatically with the arrival of science into our culture in the 18th century, around about that time, when many of the old stories of the Bible and of other sources were questioned by science and basically were said, you know, that, that can't be literally true. So there was this crisis in a way about what to do with those stories, and the resurrection is one of those stories. And what Spong says is that for many people, not everybody, but for many people, the literal resurrection became no longer possible to believe in. It just didn't fit with scientific knowledge. Now, you can continue to believe that. There's nothing, I mean, lots of us do, and that's an option we exercise with our precious freedom of religion. But Spong says that the, a good part of the culture shifted at that point and began moving in a different direction. He's not talking about everybody, but a part of the culture that helps shape the trends in our life. And Spong proposes that as the literal idea of resurrection became less and less believable, at least for some people, what arose to replace it is political liberalism. I bet you weren't thinking that was coming. See, that's the surprise part. So why would that happen? Spong says that as long as justice was seen as something that could not happen on earth, it was justice was thought about as only possible after death. Because there didn't appear to be any way to have justice on this earth. But as the idea of the resurrection, he says, began to lose some steam, what happened is there arose a movement that said, well, it can only happen on earth. We're going to have to create the kingdom, the just kingdom, the place where all is love and compassion on earth. And so he says that this is the birth of liberalism, that there's this dynamic of shifting into thinking that we need to overthrow the despots, we need to put them out of business, and embark on this long journey towards what Martin Luther King calls the beloved community on earth. And in order to do that, we have to pursue these issues of how people are treated and what justice looks like. According to Spong, who has 
an offbeat idea on every issue, that is the birth of political liberalism, the eventual overthrow of all the tyrants and the long march towards liberty, equality, and justice. This doesn't mean that religion gets overthrown, it's just got a new twist to it. It's just got a new twist. So if you are a political liberal, this is one theologian's idea of how your tradition emerged. And if you are not a political liberal, you can just go to your Easter dinner and enjoy it. So what I'm proposing is not the only way to look at things. As it never is when I'm proposing it. And it's not something that decreases the meaning, meaning of the Easter story, at least it doesn't seem to, to me. But for those who do not see a literal resurrection as what likely happened, there is a way to see it as a message about part of this world that is open to our experience, it is a possible experience that shows us a reality that we're not aware of all the time. It's something that we can enter into in many ways. We can enter into it through worldly experiences, just going out with the flowers and just being aware of that tremendous power of rebirth I wish I were a gardener, but I'm not, but I just admire the gardener so much. Just being in touch with that tremendous power which is our true nature. So we can enter into it that way, we can enter into it through relationships of love and compassion, which is another piece of the story that is so strong we can enter into it through being in touch with a larger reality. We call it the spirit of life. We call it so many things. That pure being that is present in every creature and every experience. When we have that experience in relationship, the great uh, Jewish theologian Martin Buber calls that the I-thou relationship. When we're experiencing a relationship with another person or group of people or even an animal that takes us beyond the normal boundaries of life and we feel connected and we feel we're in a transformational process with someone. There's a wonderful poem that I want to read to you by uh, Rainier Maria Rilke, who's one of my very favorite poem, poets. And this one is called How to Bloom. So how to be a flower, how to bloom. I endlessly marvel at you, blissful ones, at your demeanor, the way you bear your vanishing adornment with timeless purpose. Ah, to understand how to bloom. 
Then would the heart be carried beyond all milder dangers to be consoled in the Great One. And what Rilke means by the Great One is death. To understand how to bloom, to be like a flower, he says, then we would be carried beyond all of those. So when we know what the flowers know, which is the secret of blossoming, then we would just jump into life and just blossom as fully as we can, and when the time comes to let go, we would just let go. Gently. Because we had fulfilled our nature. And if we can do that, the poet says, we travel safely through all the joys and sorrows of life and meet the greatest loss of all, the loss of our individual existence with peace and equanimity. See, this is, this is the variation on how death is conquered. It's another way of looking at that. It's a powerful message, and that truth may not be accessible to us at all times. We, we don't see that all the time because we're too busy thinking about the meeting we have. That is why we have the stories. We have the stories so we'll be reminded of these truths. And so we have the story of the bunny and the story of Jesus and the story of the lily. Because we love having stories, we humans. They remind us of the truth. So whatever our theology might be, whatever our beliefs or lack of beliefs, we're all part of this great creative spirit of life which is so much more vast than our individuality and lives on before us and after us. Whatever our beliefs, we are all part of that great movement toward justice on this earth. Whatever we may think happens after that. We're all part of that movement toward the beloved community. We're part of the spirit of life that resurrects over and over again after the coldest winter and even after the reign of tyrants. All the tyrants will pass away. And the march towards the beloved community will continue. This is the direction of the moral arc of the universe. That spirit just comes back again and again. How fortunate for all of us. What a wonderful reality to celebrate on this day. And it is there all around, as our choral piece said. William Blake said it this way. Just like that is the way he said it. That was the intro. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. We enter the eternal through the doorway in this world. So as the glorious earth explodes in color and new life, let us honor the beauty all around us. And as the bombs explode, on the gentle earth, may our hearts be full of compassion and ready for transformation as we bring justice to overthrow 
tyranny all over our planet. May the hopes for the fullness of life on this earth be our aim and our path and our rebirth as we seek to build the beloved community right here and right now. Happy Easter.